It's now our privilege to continue to look to the Word of God, finishing up a study that we had actually began last week, explaining why we actually gather. So, why we do what we're doing today. It's an important question for us, especially when we consider that about one month ago today, our state and many states around our country decided to take actionable steps to what has been called the new normal. The idea was that uh, there would be this safe, smart plan by which we would all be able to get back to this new way of life. And I have to say, things are more normal than they were a month ago. But I don't know that plexiglass at the grocery store and face masks everywhere we go and constant washing of hands, even though that's a great idea, (laughs) is the way things used to be. And I don't know that it's the way things will always be. You know, as I think about this, I think there are good things from this whole event that many of us want to keep. And there are many that we would just want to jettison. (laughs) Washing hands, thumbs up. Great job. I'm glad people have finally learned how to do that. But wearing a mask everywhere you go, I don't prefer that, personally. Uh, Government overreach or constant threat to personal health, or a devastated economy, I'd be happy to see that go forever. But extended time with family, board games, walks, personal time in the Word, I've kind of enjoyed that. I don't know about you. What we're being offered is this ability, this unique capacity that most people have never had to to hit the reset button on our habits and to truly craft a new normal. It's like concrete that's beginning to dry. And we have the capacity now that it's wet once more to shape in many ways the life that we would like to have. Many are considering, for example, whether or not they will work at a particular location or work from home. Uh, Many are considering whether or not they will send their children to a brick-and-mortar school or whether they think they can brave the trials of homeschool. Uh, Many of us are determining how much we want to allow back into what I would call our discretionary calendar. Uh, We've determined so many things that can be done online, and a major part of our hearts and lives have moved on to online formats because we see the benefit of such a tool. And at the same time, we're itching to get back to some things that are tactile, some things that are real. They exist in time and space, and we want to put them back in. And so what I would like to do this morning in finishing up this study is to help you pastorally put some of the right things back in. Now, admittedly, I don't want to overreach. (laughs) I can't tell you the best way to educate your children. I can't tell you whether you should or should not work remotely. I can't tell you how to fill your weekends. 
But I can tell you what God himself thinks about taking the time and energy to show up to real gatherings like this one. Just in case we thought this was optional, as even I've heard the Supreme Court has ruled that this may not be essential. I want to show you from Scripture that it actually is. As you put together your new life, I I don't want you to, to look back to the time when you were able to watch church from your couch with your own cup of coffee in your pajamas and think, those were the good old days. <laughs> what I'd like to show you from God's Word is that these are the good old days. This is what God has actually intended. So we're explaining why we gather or to be more accurate, why we actually gather, not just virtually gather. Now, before I review the reasons and get us to our final one that we didn't discuss from last week, I want to do a huge clarification, especially for those who are watching at home right now. I am not arguing this morning for why we gather right now, why we gather this Sunday. This isn't some implicit rebuke of those who weren't able to join us today, for those who are at risk. For many of you, I'm glad you're actually at home right now. Nor is this an implicit rebuke of other churches who have not yet decided to gather. This isn't us being high and mighty and saying that we at Faith Bible Church here have it all figured out and everybody else needs to get on board. Different elders and congregations will have different reasons for choosing to gather or not gather at different times for the safety of their particular congregations. So we're not arguing against people who don't yet feel safe at home. We're not arguing against churches that have not yet decided to gather. What we're arguing for this morning is the new normal. Should an officially gathered actual assembly be a part of the hardening concrete that will be our lives in the months and years and decades to come? And I would say yes. The Bible says yes. For three reasons that we began last week and I'll continue with this week. The first, we gather, actually gather, because it's who we are, it's what we do, and it's how we work. It's who we are, it's what we do, it's how we work. Just by way of review, and in case you weren't able to be with us last week, please know that your fundamental identity in Christ is actually inherent to a gathering of some sort. You know the old phrase that we don't go to church, but we are the church. The statement is both true and false. There's some problems with it, but there's actually some accuracies to it. There is a sense in which we are the church. We know from Ephesians 5.25 that Christ like, gave up himself for the church. We know, according to Matthew 16.18, that when people properly profess Jesus as the Messiah, that they become a part of the church that he himself is building, the one that the gates of hell cannot stand against. We know on the basis of Hebrews chapter 12, 
verse 18, that upon salvation, when we turned from sin and to Christ, we were enrolled in the assembly of the firstborn of heaven. Assembly being that word church. Church is not just where you go. It is who you are. It is inherent to your identity in Christ. You and I who are in Christ are indeed the church. But before you go on using a definition like the church to dismiss physical gatherings, we need to understand what the word church actually means. We don't actually have the right to make church mean whatever we want it to mean. It's a real word that was used in the first century, and anyone who would have heard it would have been familiar with its connotations and what it involved. And a church was a real gathering of people. I think I defined it this way last week, and it seems to align with everything that I've studied for the last several years. It's a purposeful people in a particular place. A church is a purposeful people in a particular place. The word ekklesia, the Greek word for church, is not the same as the word for people generally or nation or ethnicity or society. There were other Greek words for that. See, you could be a people, you could be an ethnicity without ever being in a particular place, but you can't be a church, you can't be an ekklesia without some type of gathering. You just look and see how the word ecclesia is used in the Old Testament. It was used to describe the people of God when they were officially gathered before him, either at Mount Sinai or in Jerusalem itself. That day when they stood before God in Sinai and became the official nation of God, they were called, it was called the Day of the Assembly. Those times when they would gather in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and for, which is actually this weekend. Pentecost, uh, t- Tabernacles, and then uh, also uh, the Feast of the Passover. These were official gatherings. that They were representing themselves in a visible way. So these are real gatherings. And so we see that this is who we are. And so we would ask naturally, though, in what sense are we already, like in our identity, a gathered people? Well, Ephesians 2, 5 says that we're already gathered in some sense spiritually in heaven. It says that we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's, that's part of who we are. Heaven is a real place. We are already in some sense gathered there. There's a part of us that is not at home in this world. And there's also not only a heavenly gathering, but an end time, or to use the fancy word, an eschatological gathering still to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 says that we will soon one day all be gathered together with the Lord. We can say that we are the church, not just will be, because we're already enrolled in that end-time assembly. It is coming. And so the truth of the matter is this is inherent to our identity. I would agree with John Donne in his timeless poem, the few little lines, all you need to know is this, he argues, No man is an island. No man is an island. You take that and you think about it biblically. Don is right. No Christian is merely an individual. To be in Christ is to be in his people. To come to the Father is to come to new brothers and sisters. You are part of a group. 
salvation is a community-creating event. I would disagree with George Strait and Tammy Wynette who said that me and Jesus have our own thing going. No, you don't. You have something going with Jesus along with the other people who have something going with Jesus. This is a group thing. And it manifests itself in real and tangible ways. Maybe this analogy would be helpful for you. You need to think of salvation as enrolling in a new sport. More like football, less like golf. More like baseball, less like bowling. It is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. You have joined a team. And what defines a team? How do you know that someone is a team? How do you know that someone belongs to a baseball team? How do you know that someone belongs to a football team? They show up together and play. They manifest themselves in time and space. I'm not a huge baseball fan. I hate to, you know, like burst anybody's bubble. Sorry, Mark, I know you are. Hey, I want you to know when I was a baseball fan, I pulled for the Yankees. Just so you know. But I know that angers the Braves fans upstairs. You may be a Rays fan. Look, I, I really don't care. I can't name a baseball player right now. But I can tell you this. They exist. And even though we don't see them on fields right now, we know that there are still teams. And how do we know that they are teams, even though they're not gathered? Because they one day will. And because they typically have. How do we know that we belong to this team? How do we know that the ecclesia is part of our identity? Well, ecclesias, assemblies, congregations, they assemble, they congregate, they gather. (laughs) We get together to play the game, if you will. We represent that we belong to the larger organization, the, the spiritual equivalent of Major League Baseball or the spiritual equivalent of the National Football League by getting together and actually showing up. This is not some unique study for me or some weird insight into theology. Everett Ferguson, who is actually one of the most renowned church history scholars, has put together this ecclesiology, and he summarizes the importance of the assembly with these words. He says, in assembly, what we're doing right now, the church becomes conscious of itself, confesses itself to be a distinct entity, shows itself to be what it is, a community, a people gathered by the grace of God, dependent on Him and honoring Him. The assembly allows the church to emerge in its true nature. The assembly allows the church to emerge in its true nature. You know this idea that's been around for literally a couple thousand years now where people actually think that, you know, I am my truest self when it's just me and Jesus. This idea of a monk traveling away and just spending some private time with God as if like this is really what it means to be in the presence of God. That's inaccurate. You want the truest picture of what it looks like to be God's child? It is in his family. You want to know what it looks like to be one of his people? It shows up in the official gathering. It is here that we should most be ourselves. We here in gatherings just like this get to live out who we really are. That is why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
and then you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll look at a local assembly of believers gathered in Corinth, and Paul will say of them that they are the church of God. He doesn't say that they are a church. He doesn't say they're part of the church. He says they are the church of God. Local assemblies identify this universal or eschatological assembly. You want to know where it's at? You look in local gatherings just like this one. And so last week we explained Matthew 18 and the official gathering of believers when there is a judicial matter to be resolved like church discipline, for example. Some people who make a judgment, the two or three, after they tell it to the church, they actually have a local assembly bears the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 tells us. It says, where these people are gathered together in my name when they're making a pronouncement about who is or is not in the kingdom, Jesus is saying they are actually revealing the will of God in heaven. Jesus is saying that he gives them this type of authority. It isn't an ecumenical council. It isn't a denomination. It isn't a proxy vote online. It is an actual gathering of people that bears the authority of Jesus. The same thing was true that we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where some people were gathering together at that local church, and they were partaking of communion, and they were doing it in an ungodly way. They were doing it in a selfish way. And you know what Paul says to them when they are like not ordering themselves appropriately in communion in a local gathering? He says, why do you despise the church of God? not a church of God or part of the church of God. What was going on in that gathering was representing what was going on in heaven itself. God's people show up in time and space just like this. And I'm telling you, friends, if you want a fascinating study, just read through the book of 1 Corinthians to get a better understanding of what a church actually is. Because it is in Corinthians that Paul will argue over and over and over again for the unity of that church. And you know what his big principle is? He keeps getting back to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, when God's people are together... It manifests God's presence in a unique way. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 speak to the fact that God in Christ has made us a new people. We are together the temple of God. Sure, there is a sense in which I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. But there is also a special and unique sense that when we come together, we represent the household of God. This is who we are. It is a group thing, not an individual thing, not an online thing. It is something in time and space, here and now. You know, when I was growing up, there was um, preachers who loved, they loved this quote from Billy Sunday. And it just goes a little something like this. Um, Maybe you've heard it. Just because, and I'm going to blow the quote, but you'll get the principle, okay? Just because someone's in a garage doesn't mean that they're a car. And just because someone's in a church doesn't mean they're a Christian. You ever heard some form of that before? When you do the whole, like, Billy Sunday line, like, it'll really, like, preach. I blew it. I knew it. So I, I apologize. But you get the principle. And you know what? I love that. I actually really did. I always thought that was really funny and clever when I was a kid. I'm like, yeah, of course. 
And I like what Sunday is actually trying to fix in that. I certainly wouldn't want anybody to think because they showed up to a building or they showed up to a group meeting that they were actually a Christian. Uh, Friends, church doesn't make us a Christian. Christ does. We are not saved by the church. We are saved by Christ. It was his righteous life, it was his atoning death, it was his life-giving resurrection that is received by faith alone that includes us into the family of God. So let's just be crystal clear, we agree with Billy Sunday, yes, churches don't save people, Jesus does. And may I say just compassionately today for those of you who may be visiting or those of you who honestly took a risk to be here today, I'm so glad you're here, but please don't pat yourself on the back and think that you're a Christian just because you showed up at church today. Unless you turn from your personal rebellion against God and trust in Jesus Christ alone, there is no salvation for you. It is only in Jesus. But that being said, can I take Sunday's quote just a step further? Do you know what I typically expect to see in a garage? A car. (laughs) By virtue of what that thing is, there's a certain place that it belongs. You know what I expect to see in a gathering, in a church? Christians. By virtue of who we are, it is inherent that there are certain places that we will belong. It is not just about believing, but it is about belonging. We and our identity as Christ followers, as the temple of God, as his gathered people, express that in gatherings just like this. So why do we gather? It is who we are. But it's also what we do. It's also what we do. This assembly is not just heavenly or eschatological, but it is actual. It exists now. I I came across this, and I thought it was extremely helpful. Jonathan Lehman writes, A gathering is characterized by gathering. A congregation is characterized by congregating. And so, we as God's family express our fellowship, our communion, and jointly partaking of the word of the Lord and the table of the Lord. A group of people who don't regularly assemble cannot be an assembly, a church. They're just a bunch of people. (laughs) You get the idea, if if God says that you are an assembly, guess what that entails? It entails that you are assembling. Not just assembling in heaven. Not just one day assembling in God's presence. But that you regularly assemble now. And so here's the question that I think is fascinating. On what basis, then, did we ever decide that we would start gathering on a weekly basis on Sundays to do what we're doing now? Where is that in the Bible? I've actually taken all week to try to figure that out, friends. (laughs) I would argue that what we're doing right now is, in many ways, what Christ himself intended. Because God's design, as you read through the New Testament, is that there would be regular gatherings for the preaching of the gospel and the practice of the ordinances. A survey of the New Testament will reveal that God designed regular gatherings for the preaching of the gospel and the practice of the ordinances. And so the question then becomes, well, okay, preaching, practice of the ordinances, why can't we just do that at home? 
you laugh because you like the pajamas, you like the couch, you like the coffee. I can buy bread, I can buy juice, I can listen to preaching on the camera. Why not be at home? Why do we have to be in person? Well, we want to make sure that we're gathering in the way that God himself actually intended. So why do we have to do this in person? It is because Christ intended that his assemblies convey tangible unity with him and with one another. Christ intended for these, these assemblies, these gatherings, to convey tangible, I'm, I'm tangible, that which you can touch, tangible unity with him and one another. See, what many of us are familiar with at a church is its content. We know that the content should be Christ-centered. If I wasn't preaching the gospel this morning, I hope that you would get up and walk out, or at least take me out. Man, we are fierce on content. We understand that that is so important. But the danger of emphasizing content over context is that we can become highly informational people, but not interpersonal ones. And so the question I would have for you is this. Does Jesus actually intend for us to be informational or interpersonal? There's no dilemma. It's both. We need the right content. It needs to be focused on Christ. Yes, indeed, anyone can hear my voice preaching right now around the world, and I am grateful for that. I could make some subtle arguments that preaching is an in-person event because I'm watching your faces, and I'm getting whether or not you're getting what I'm saying, and there's a natural flow to communication, but I'm not even going to try to do that this morning. What I want to focus on is that the actual context of communion with one another, visibly coming together, is the God-intended context for said gatherings. It is not just about information distribution. It is about interpersonal relationship, and God designed it that way. So, how would I do this? Let's briefly trace the history of a gathering just like this. This starts in Acts chapter 2. You have 3,000 people who are baptized. They're added to the church. And what immediately happens, because it's in their DNA, they immediately become a part of the gathering. You know what those folks do? They immediately start gathering. So just listen to some of these verses from Acts 2.42. Soon as they were baptized and saved, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice that, together, they're sharing food. You know what the first thing that they did? They started getting together regularly to enjoy food together and the teaching of God's Word so that they could convey oneness with God and oneness with one another. Now, the Jerusalem event is rather an anomaly because we don't know how often they met. It just says day by day. We're all 3,000 people gathering to Solomon's colonnade every day. I have no clue. I tend to think not, but I'm not going to make any conjecture there. I think that they were probably gathering on a weekly basis and doing a lot of day-by-day stuff in their homes, but I don't have any authority to say that. But here's what I do know. As you continue to look at the history of the church in the book of Acts, you come to Acts chapter 20, 
And you zoom over to Troas, and Paul is showing up there, and this is a church that he's already planted, and I want you to note the habit that had formed in that particular community. Paul actually shows up, and this is what he says to them. On the first day of the week, when we were together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, the rest of the story goes, he goes so long that this guy named Eutychus, sitting in the window, falls out asleep and dies, and they bring him back to life. Here's what I want you to know. When we look at the pattern of the early church, this is another recorded instance of the gathering. We know that it was happening weekly. We know that it involved a tangible sign of fellowship like a meal, and we know that it involved long preaching. No, I'm not defensive. Long preaching. Now, the point is, this is what was going on. So you're just trying to get a picture of like, okay, what type of gathering did Jesus himself shape through the Apostle Paul? Well, it was one that happened weekly. It was one that involved a tangible sign of fellowship like a meal, and I would argue that the breaking of bread here is communion. And it involved discourse around the Word of God. This is the history of the church. There was a religious family meal, and there was a religious family talk that followed the meal. Now, I want you to trace this, because we're, gonna, we're putting together evidence for the way things used to be. This is how history works, friends. It's not always spelled out for us so clearly. T- take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 again to see an even more clear picture of the gathering as taught by the tradition of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says actually in the second verse, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. So what he's going to be talking about in 11 all the way through 14 are the apostolic traditions that he has handed on to them. He's given them some instruction on how they were to do church on Sundays, if you will. And here's where we're going to see some similarity to the book of Acts. Go to verse 17. Because of their problems, Paul's going to try to fix them. We're going to see how things work. And listen again for this. We mentioned it last week, but it's worth review. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, third time he said that, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Then he will give them some corrective instruction. And notice how he closes out in verses 33 to 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it's the fifth time he's mentioned that, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. Do you notice what happens in the early assembly when we look at some like insight into the tradition of the apostles that's been passed on to the church at Corinth? What are those folks doing? 
They are eating a meal together that is supposed to express their oneness as the people of God and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. But what I find is so interesting, Paul is flummoxed by the fact that they aren't expressing oneness with one another. That's his big concern. This meal, this Lord's Supper, was supposed to convey unity with one another, with real food, with real people, in a real place. And you would wonder then, well, how often were they doing this? Well, I'd at least say regularly. But if you read ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, where Paul tells them that on the Lord's day, they need to take up a collection for the saints, it implies that they were meeting on a weekly basis on Sundays. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. So you put the picture together, and you read 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul's addressing the traditions that he's handed down to them, and what we have is the context of a meal, a context of an event that is conveying oneness with one another. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he's going to address the religious talk, their ministry to one another, the prophesying, the preaching, at those times the apostolic gift of tongues that was still in operation. There was this time of edification, so there was eating and there was edification. There was a religious family meal and then there was a religious family talk. We see it in the book of Acts, we see it in Corinthians. This is what Christians do. This is what an assembly was. And here's the thing, I'm going to geek out for like two minutes, so just cut me a break. If you go back and you look at extra-biblical history of the church in the first two centuries, you are going to find out that this was not only going on in Corinth, it was not only going on in Jerusalem, but this is what is happening in every instance of the gathered church known in history. It's a fascinating concept because most people will try to say, well, these gatherings of people started with the Jewish synagogue. There's no way. (laughs) What was going on in Rome during this time is you had a new type of event showing up. It had been around for a couple hundred years, and it was that of the guild or the society. Society meetings were pretty fascinating because for like one of the first times in human history, you had a new people group established outside of a family. So you had always had a nation, you had always had families, but now there was an in-between group, and that was one's guild. So, for example, someone could get together for a mason's guild, and you know what they would do in these meetings? They would meet together regularly. The meetings always began with a meal in honor to whatever patron god oversaw their craft, and then they would have long discussions into the evening about matters relevant to their particular god and occupation. There's societies, there was the collegia, there were these guilds. This was commonplace in Rome in this time, and it seems that God in his unique providence was able to actually capitalize upon this instinct of people who would gather on something beyond the family but less than the nation, and so we have the shaping of the New Testament church. And so we see in the earliest historical documents that churches were gathering together on Sunday evenings, by the way, the Lord's Day, but on Sunday evenings because they had to work. I mean, it wasn't until Constantine came along that you actually, like, got Sunday off, so people had to work their normal jobs, and then they would gather together. You say, well, why would they do it on Sunday night as opposed to Saturday night? Because many of them were Jews, 
and their families ate together on Saturday night. So they wanted to get together at the first available time. And you know what they would do? They would get together. They would have this meal that commemorated the risen Christ. And then they would teach and edify and pray and sing along into the night hours. That was the original weekly gathering. It wasn't until the mid-second century that the meal itself actually got separated from the actual gathering People started gathering on Sunday mornings because it was more convenient. And then the Eucharist, which is the bread and the wine, was separated from an actual meal that would take place at night. Most people started showing up on the mornings because it was easier, and thus we dropped the meal. So if you really like want to get back to the way things used to be, we would have had breakfast already. <laughs> we would have celebrated the Lord's Supper in that context, and then we would do what we're doing right now. But I'm not arguing for that this morning. What I am arguing is that this is the way that it was done. This is what Christ intended for his gatherings. Not only content, listen to me, don't miss the point, but context. A meal. Something that was to convey togetherness. I mean, this is even better than a baseball team. What we're talking about here is the equivalent of a family meal. You don't do that virtually. I know from experience. When I left North Carolina, where I was from, 25 years, same place, and when I went to Los Angeles, I'm not kidding, the hardest thing, and I'll say this looking into the camera in case my family's watching, the hardest thing was for me to leave those weekly family dinners. Every other Sunday after church, my family, extended family, would gather and eat dinner together, and let me tell you, it was not a digital experience, it was tactile. You could smell perfume and cologne and turkey and dessert. (laughs) You could touch people. There were pats on the backs. There were hugs. There were kisses on the cheek. I mean, you heard the sounds of arguing, of entertainment, of edification as the Sunday sermon was reflected upon or sometimes critiqued. (laughs) It was something you heard. It was something you tasted. It was something you touched. It was something you saw. It was real. I told my family when I left, hey, it's fine. Hey, it's going to be totally fine. Look, I know I'll be in Los Angeles, but here's the deal. It was 2010. Skype. We're going to use Skype. And so it's going to be totally cool. We're still going to be able to text, and we're going to be able to talk, and we're going to do this video conference thing, and everything's going to be okay. The text grew less frequent. The phone calls grew less frequent. The Skype was a rarity. I was so clamoring, though, that first Christmas that we weren't there to actually partake of that family meal once more. Tanya actually made the same dinner that my grandmother made remotely. She made the turkey. She made the dressing. She made all the stuff. And we decided that we were going to Skype the family and do this together. It was one of the most hollow experiences of my entire life. For four minutes of just like painstaking, like everybody's trying to look at me and we're trying to look at them. I mean, we just, we turned it off. And I'm not trying to be uber emotional, but I cried for the next three to four minutes because I realized that this is not the way it was supposed to be. Friends, This is what we do. This is tactile. It is 
it is touch, and when communion is served, it is taste and smell, and it is sight, it is in person, it is analog, it is not digital, and I am arguing that this is the way that it's supposed to be. This is what God actually intended for his families. He wanted there to be tangible displays of communion, of oneness, and that doesn't just happen via email. It's interesting to me that even the thoroughly non-Christian Sigmund Freud recognized the limitations of technology. In his book, Civilization and Its Discontents, he has this interesting passage where he celebrates the rise of technology and how it can keep people connected. He talks about someone who goes, a child who goes on a voyage or a train trip, excuse me, and then can phone back that he is safe. Or a friend who goes on a voyage across the sea and can telegraph back that everything's okay. But then Freud will actually say, this is fascinating to me, that the pleasure of the new technology is about as helpful and cheap as someone who finds entertainment from taking their leg and sticking it out from under the covers, getting it cold and putting it back in again. (laughs) He says, what technology gives us, it also takes away. And then he says this, and this is mind-blowing to me. He says, if there was no railway, I would need no phone to hear my child's voice. And if there was no steam liner, I would need no telegraph to find out if my friend was okay. Friends, I'm not arguing that technology's great. I'm so glad that we can live stream this thing today. I'm glad that we can record it, that other people can see it. But we need to understand something. This is not the way that God intended for it to be. What we have today is a crutch. I'm not meaning that in the negative sense. Sometimes we use the word crutch negatively. I'm saying technology for us is a crutch. It can facilitate these in-person expressions of oneness. But you don't walk on a crutch forever. Then it is used in its negative sense. We've got people who cannot be here today. They are at risk if they come, and I totally understand that, and I'm glad they are. We're not talking about today, we're talking about the new normal. And I'm telling you, when we think about what God wants for his family, it is actual family gatherings. It is analog, it is not digital. This is what we do. This is what God intended. It is not just an identity thing, it is an action thing. It is getting together for these family meals. So why do we gather? It is who we are, it is what we do, and then finally, it's how we work. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews, where we looked at a little earlier, and this is our last passage for the day. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm really excited about this, folks, because I think that this is one of the most overused, abused, misused passages in all the Bible. Like, it is a Swiss army knife of guilt. If you want to make somebody feel bad, you just start waving around Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And normally the way it works is this, it's normally a legalist with a lot of time on his hands. And he thinks that he and everybody else on the planet should be at anything that happens at a church building. And so the first time somebody doesn't show up to the thing that he was at, they will begin to actually take the verse and say, well, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. I can't believe you weren't there every time the doors were open. I mean, literally, a phrase that was like parroted at my church growing up was five to thrive. Five to thrive. Anybody ever heard that? 
Five to Thrive was Sunday morning, excuse me, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and visitation. <laughs> you want to thrive in your walk, you show up five times to church. All right, so the thing that I'm so happy about in coming to this passage is we have spent 75 to 80% of our time talking about why we gather without ever looking at this verse. But we still need to look at it. But I want to do it, to avoid misusing it, I want to do it looking at its context and its content. Basic hermeneutical principle, folks. You want to know how to interpret your Bibles? Look at the context and then look at the content. The context is mind-blowing. We read it today. I prayed it even. If you look at Hebrews 10, verse 19, you'll find out that he is actually talking here. He's pleading with these these brothers who are considering leaving the faith that they need to stay in because they have a great high priest in Jesus. And they don't need to shirk away from him. They need to actually run to him because the priests that they're considering going back to in Judaism who were respected by the Roman Empire at the time, the ones that they could have gone to and safely practiced worship, like he's saying, those priests can't get the job done. They're always standing up day by day by day, like trying to like atone for sin, and they just can't get it done. But Jesus, the great high priest of the household of God, he's finished it. He sat down at the right hand of God like he made his body a sacrifice. He has purely cleansed our conscience. And because of him, we need to not run away, but we need to realize this is one to whom we need to draw near. And so he gives these exhortations on the basis of the the superior priestly ministry of Jesus. And I want you to look at verse 22. I mean, yeah, 22. Notice his first admonition. Let us draw near in light of who Jesus is and what he's done let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, notice this. Draw near to Jesus. Don't run away from him. You need to draw near. Second admonition, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Notice this. You've got two admonitions. Just keep drawing near to Jesus. Keep drawing near to Jesus using different words, and now notice how he admonishes them once more to stay near to Jesus. Verse 24, let us also consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Paul's, notice what the main command is. The point is, hey, you need to keep showing love to Jesus, and as much as we would think that is just us and our Bibles and our private devotional times, He says there's a third way in which this happens. It isn't only drawing near. It isn't only holding fast. It's also provoking to love one another. Provoking one another to love and good works. He says you should, pardon the phrase, give a rip about other people in the gathering. Like you should still get to this physical gathering because there are people there who need you. You want to draw near to Jesus? You should care about other people. Encourage them. Provoke them. In what context? How? Here's the participle. It's not even the main verb. It's the participle. The point is love one another, provoke one another to love and good works. And how do we do this? He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is the context in which we do this stirring up in love that shows our allegiance to Jesus? Gathering together. Gathering together. That's how it works. 
Embracing Jesus as the great high priest entails that we embrace one another in actual gatherings. Or the, the converse is true. Abandoning Jesus as great high priest entails abandoning one another in actual gatherings. It was a sign that they were actually going away from the great high priest if they were going away from one another and not caring about one another. Doesn't this fit well with what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20? How can you say that you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? There is no way possible, friends, for us to isolate love for God, allegiance to Jesus, and love and allegiance for his actual people. I was just talking to a guy yesterday, day before yesterday, about Jesus' great command. You remember that lawyer? He says, what is the great commandment? The whole point of the debate was to get this thing down to one commandment. And Jesus like, I just love his response. This is brilliant. He will not give him one. He says there's two. Actually, he says there's one, but he gives them in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, he keeps it all in one sentence. <laughs> there's no dividing it. You're not going to get it down to one and just say, well, as long as I'm loving God, I'm at least in a good category there. No. Loving God also entails loving his people. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is clinging to Christ also involves clinging to his people in love. If you're going to avoid apostasy, if you're going to remain faithful, it's going to require you actually getting together to provoke one another via personal presence to love and good works. Friends, this is how we work. I have, um, in recent days had the opportunity to have some conversations with um, a professional consultant. He's a Christian guy, and the company that he works for does work for the U.S. Air Force, Chick-fil-A, Lidos, uh, and a few other, Delta, I mean, some major companies. This isn't some, like, fly-by-night consultant or life coach. This is a pretty legit guy. And, and he's offering, like, these little tables and charts, you know, of ways that organizations can best run. And one of the ones that fascinated me was what it was called a providing effective uh, challenge, providing effective challenge. And it's this little diagram, and it shows how you should actually provoke or challenge people. And it, and it traces the effectiveness. And I love, I didn't have to read all the research. I can just look at the diagram and find this. You know what the diagram shows? <laughs> you know what like professional researchers have shown about provoking other people for good? There's certain mediums have an effect on the effectiveness of it. So, for example, texting is about 10% effective. Email is 15% effective. Your phone, 35%. Video, 70%. Guess what in person is? Not 100, but it is 95% effective. You know why? Because if we're really going to provoke someone, if we're really going to encourage someone, if we're really going to motivate someone to love and good works... They need to not only hear our words, they need to sense the tone, they need to see our facial expression, they need to read our body language. This is how we work. Friends, I don't want to offend any one of you who have ever sent me a Facebook happy birthday message, but I may. I just want you to know I don't read those. If you tell me happy birthday on Facebook, I don't even know that it happened. And you know why? Because I know that Facebook automatically reminds you that it's my birthday. You cheated. 
And didn't you just click like? I mean, the best you could give me for my birthday was a like? Really? Write a card. No, I'm just kidding. No. Well, I'm not kidding about not reading your Facebook messages, but you all know that that's the case. Somebody sends some form of electronic communication, and you're thinking like, oh, well, at least they were thinking about me. Somebody sends you a text message, oh, at least they were thinking about me. But we know that the more personal it gets, the more effective it is. Friends, if my wife was struck with a terminal disease and we were at the hospital, text and Facebook messages are welcome, but the people who really care are going to be there. It's the way we work. You know what the, the author of Hebrews is saying? Show allegiance to Jesus by continuing to love his people in the God-ordained context of personal presence. You know what's happening this morning? This is one-stop shopping for ministry, friends. The Puritans used to call Sunday the market day for the soul. You know what we're used to? We're used to grocery stores being open 24-7. And so we think that we just get whatever we want, whenever we want. I'm not kidding. I think this week at my house, we've done like seven online grocery deliveries. Like We just keep thinking like, oh, we need some hand soap. Oh, we need deli meat. I feel bad for those folks over at Sprouts because they're always at my house. But back in the 1600s, there was one day to get everything you needed. There was one day when the, the folks would get together and share their wares and sell their stuff. It was market day. You, you got everything that you needed for the week, and then you went and lived. Sunday is the market day for the soul. There's, we're all here. We're already gathered, and guess what? There's going to be opportunities here for us to get to get encouragement from others that, that, that can provide it for us, and there's going to be opportunities for us to, to sell, to give, if you will, to actually provide encouragement and challenge for those who need it. We're all here. Why not go ahead and do it? One of my favorite books from the last few years is only 60 pages long. You like that? You want to say that you read a book this year? If you haven't read one yet, do this one. It's only 60 pages. It's called How to Walk into Church by Tony Payne. I really, I, I think it's a close, like, top two of books that we give out the most around here. How to Walk into Church. And let me just read you these lines. This guy is giving us instructions on how to walk into church, and I know it sounds really primitive, but this is his advice. He says, on the basis of Hebrews 10.25, what you need to be doing is you need to pray about where you sit. Now, I know that we took that privilege away from you. We're doing our best. But he says, in normal times, you would pray about where you sit. And this, notice this. He says, how you walk into church, though, once you're determining that uh, you'll pray that God would put you around the right people, will be determined, how you walk in will be determined by what you think a church is and by what you think you're doing there. This is a little different than what I argued last week. He says, if you think church is a bit like going to the movies, you might walk in expecting to be entertained or inspired. If you think church is an opportunity for personal devotion and worship, you'll probably walk in not wanting to interact too much with anyone else. If you think church is something you have to do in order to do the right thing or stay on God's good side, you'll walk in with the determination to do what needs to be done and then leave as soon as possible. But each one of us has a role to play in church, and each one of us is necessary to the gathering. We do not go first to be served by others, but to serve Church is not about me, 
It's not about the experience I have or what I get out of, out of it. Church is a classic opportunity to love my brothers and sisters who are there by seeking to build them up in Christ. Friends, you know the old adage about exercise, half the battle is just getting to the gym. Some of you, you want more fruitful ministry, you want to see God alive and well in your soul, you want to have an impact, you want to show love in tangible ways. And again, I'm not preaching to the choir, you're here, great, I'm glad. But don't ever let it become optional. Get to the gym. (laughs) Then those spiritual impulses within you will take over, you will be able at that point to, to interact. God will align your path with those who need it. Maybe it is encouragement, maybe it's challenge, maybe it's you on the receiving end, maybe it's you on the giving end. But this is what church is for, provoking one another to love and good works. And that doesn't happen very well online. It's how we work. And so the the wet clay of the new normal is beginning to harden already. One month in, it's phase one. Phase two is right around the corner. And as the clay hardens, you have the opportunity to cut some things out and to carve some things in. Friend, as I've reviewed the Word of God, I I could just give some pastoral advice about what to to cut out. (laughs) You know what? Maybe we walk away from this with our weekends not being as busy. Maybe we don't sign up for as many events. Maybe we limit ourselves a little more. Maybe we do continue to spend more time with our families. There are are some legitimate things that I would commend to you to carve out. But that's not what this text is speaking to today. God's Word is telling us that make sure that there is something that you carve in, that you make time for, and that is in a real and actual gathering of God's people. This is His plan. It's not a historical holdover. It's part of what he wants because it's who we are. It's what we do. It's how we work. We're going to pray in response to this. I'll ask the musicians if they'll come forward. And Mark has actually picked a song for us to be able to silently pray together. Uh, It's called A Christian's Daily Prayer. And you'll notice that in the song that we're about to, to silently pray, It's written in the first person, but the staff and I even had the discussion this week, you could make it plural. Instead of I, you could say we. But the truth is, for us to be the gathered assembly that God has made us, to live that out in real time and space, we need his help. We need his assistance. And so let's pray now, and then what I'll do is I'll come back, and I'll give you a few announcements. We're going to do a closing time of prayer and we'll be done for the day. But right now, let's pray in response to God's Word.